We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 358 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, July 18th, 2022. It is the start of a vacation week for me. Now, if you are a longtime listener of this podcast, yes, the long, glorious history of this podcast, which dates all the way back to February 2021, uh, you perhaps know what vacation week means for this podcast. Vacation week does not mean that I take off the entire week. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not allowed on this podcast. Vacation week means that I take off a few days during the week. Uh, The plan is to take off two days this week. So the plan is for three shows this week instead of the usual five. Uh, The three shows for this week, uh, this show, the show for Monday, and then shows for Thursday and Friday. So the plan is no shows for Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, This is the week of the Major League Baseball All-Star break. This is one of the slowest weeks of the year in sports, maybe in fact the slowest week of the year in sports, but as you probably know by now, (laughs) there really is no such thing as a slow week in Washington, D.C. sports, not when you have everything that goes on with our teams. And so as is always the case with a vacation week for the Al Galdi podcast, the show schedule is subject to change depending on the news of the week. So if something massive in Washington, D.C. sports goes down this week and I happen to not be doing a show for the following day, well, uh, then that will change. So if the commanders on Monday make a trade with the Kansas City Chiefs for quarterback Patrick Mahomes, I'll do a show for the following day. If the Nationals on Tuesday say, I don't know, trade right fielder Juan Soto, I'll do a show for the following day. And yeah, unfortunately, we now, in fact, are on Nats Juan Soto trade watch. I don't know that we're on Commanders Chiefs Patrick Mahomes trade watch. I wish that we were, but I don't think that we are. But we are now on Nats Juan Soto 
Trade Watch. Uh, we have a lot to talk about on this expansive Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. This is a deluxe edition of the Al Galdi podcast, and among the many things that I'm going to be getting into with you is, yes, the huge news on Saturday afternoon. Multiple reports that Juan Soto has turned down a 15-year, $440 million contract extension offer from the Nats, who now are open to trading him prior to the MLB trade deadline on August 2nd. Boy, that situation (laughs) escalated in a hurry, didn't it? We went from the Nats supposedly having no interest in trading Soto this season to now Soto very much being on the trade block. Coming up on the show, in-depth analysis of the big news from Saturday afternoon, including uh, just how good truly was this contract extension offer from the Nats. 15 years, $440 million. The truth about the offer may not be what you think. And we got to get into where the news came from. Who leaked the news? Boy, the answer sure seems to be the Nats. And Soto on Saturday afternoon was not at all happy about that. Are we, in fact, in the midst of the final days of Juan Soto with the Nats? I mean, think about that. Think about how big of a deal that is, that Juan Soto soon could be gone. He's set to participate in the home run derby on Monday night, but whether he's about to be traded is like all that anyone is going to care about. Uh, Next segment. A special guest to talk Juan Soto, uh, to also talk about the Nats' ownership situation, to also talk about the Orioles' ownership situation, and to also talk about, yes, the Commanders. Tom Lavero, columnist for the Washington Times, my buddy, my pal, my former colleague at the Team 980. Tommy's a good man. You know, Tom has been very well-connected with both the Nats and the O's over the years. And Tom, of course, has a lot to say about the Commanders. Now, as you may know, uh, no fanboy of the Commanders is Tommy, but Tom does think that the Commanders could win 10 games this coming season. We'll talk about that, as well as the state of our Commanders co-owner and co-CEO Dan Snyder in his battle with Congress, a battle that Dan right now is winning, whether we like it or not. Dan right now is defeating Congress. Uh, And Tom and I will have a frank discussion about Commanders team president Jason Wright. Tom Lavero on the show next segment. Also on the show, the 2022 MLB draft. Uh, It got going on Sunday evening. I'll discuss what the Nats did with the number five overall pick and what the Orioles did with the number one overall pick. And I'll get into what happened for the Nats and the O's over the weekend in actual games. Uh, The Nats ended up losing three out of four games to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park Thursday through Sunday. Although, thankfully, the Nats won on Sunday afternoon to snap a nine-game losing streak. So the Nats are not entering the All-Star break on a 10-game losing streak. That would have been bad. Uh, The O's, they lost two or three games at the Tampa Bay Rays over the weekend as the Orioles' 10-game winning streak ended on Friday night, but there still was plenty to like from the O's in the series, including more good stuff from catcher Adley Rutschman. Boy, if you are an O's fan, Adley Rutschman right now is blossoming before your eyes. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of great feedback to my conversation with NFL analytics pioneer Warren Sharp talking commanders on Friday's show 
episode 357. Tweet from Amani. This was excellent analysis. We got to have Warren back on midseason. Tweet from Keith. Awesome get. Tweet from DMV fan. Warren is fantastic. Uh, yes, he is fantastic. Uh, thank you. Uh, all credit to Warren Sharp. He was excellent. Definitely check out my chat with him if you haven't yet done so. Uh, you'll learn a lot. I know that I learned a lot. Uh, lots of tweets on the Juan Soto contract situation with the Nats. Tweet from Brian Young. Sad day in DC sports. Tweet from Omar the Great. Another feeble attempt <laughs> to re-sign him. Tweet from Rob Martin, trade for prospects, build a stronger farm system, Tampa Bay. History shows most who reach the max deals don't perform like the players did in trying to get there. The players lose their edges as money replaces the players' pure love of the game. Few keep producing at Hall of Fame levels consistently. Uh, Yeah, Rob, there's no doubt. The history of mega money contracts in all sports, not very good. Uh, especially in baseball. Tweet from Mike on the Orioles and Nationals. Uh, Writes Mike, how much of what the Orioles are doing is being driven by players who came over as part of the tank, either from sell-offs or high draft picks? And how much of what the Orioles are doing is better coaching, getting more out of existing players? Seems relevant for the Nats. Uh, Thank you for the tweet, Mike. Good question. So a good number of current key Orioles position players were drafted By the team's previous head of baseball operations, Dan Duquette, Uh, he served as Orioles Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations from November 2011 to October 2018. Uh, First baseman slash outfielder Trey Mancini, he was taken by the O's in the eighth round of the 2013 MLB draft. That was a Duquette pick. Uh, First baseman slash outfielder Ryan Mountcastle, he was taken by the O's in the first round of the 2015 MLB draft. That was a Duquette pick. Uh, Center fielder Cedric Mullins was taken by the O's in the 13th round of the 2015 MLB draft. That was a Duquette pick. Outfielder Austin Hayes was taken in the third round of the 2016 MLB draft. That was a Duquette pick. The legacy of Dan Duquette has improved over the last few years with what has become of those four players, and also with two pitchers who Duquette drafted, uh, ranking as two of the top pitching prospects in baseball right now, Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall. Uh, Duquette took Rodriguez with the number 11 pick in the 2018 MLB draft. Duquette took Hall with the number 21 pick in the 2017 MLB draft. But it has been the Orioles' current executive vice president and general manager, Mike Elias, who has overseen a farm system that now is elite. Uh, MLB Pipeline this past March ranked the O's as having the number one farm system in baseball. MLB Pipeline right now ranks the O's as having five of the top 93 prospects in baseball. Three of the five prospects were drafted by Elias. But the biggest thing to me that Elias deserves credit for is revamping the Orioles to where they have become much more modernized and much more at the forefront of analytics. Now, Elias has been allowed to do this. He has been given the budget by the Angelos family to do this. Dan Duquette was not given such a budget, uh, nor was he allowed to sign international players the way that the Angelos family has allowed Elias to sign international players. But the O's now being at the forefront of analytics, I believe, is why the team 
is getting surprising production from starting pitchers like Tyler Wells and Spencer Watkins and why the Orioles' bullpen has been so good. And Elias acquired these guys. Elias took Tyler Wells in December 2020 in the 2020 Rule 5 draft. Elias signed Spencer Watkins as a free agent in January 2021 and then re-signed him in November 2021. Uh, Elias selected Jorge Lopez off waivers from the Kansas City Royals in August 2020. Now, Lopez struggled as a starting pitcher for the O's, but he has blossomed as a reliever for the O's. Uh, Elias selected reliever CNL Perez off waivers from the Cincinnati Reds in November 2021. So the answer is that the Orioles' improvement is a function of both players acquired by Dan Duquette and players acquired by Mike Elias and is a function of a process that has been put in place by Elias. Well, when it comes to the process of buying a home in the Washington, D.C. area, nobody's process is better than that of Kellen Hunt. If you are wanting to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, if you are on the hunt for a home in the D.C. area, get with Kellen Hunt. Visit closeitwithkel.com. That's closeitwithkel, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. If you have questions and concerns about buying a home right now, Kellen Hunt can help you. Kellen Hunt has his finger on the pulse of developments all around the Washington, D.C. area. He's a DMV native. He lives and breathes the culture of the Washington, D.C. area. He has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to local neighborhoods and economical development and schools and market conditions and all that makes the Washington, D.C. area unique. And Kellen Hunt closes deals. He wins. He is here for you to listen to what you want and then get you what you want. No matter your age, family situation, or financial situation, Kellen Hunt can help you. Kellen Hunt is a real estate agent for real people, and Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yeah, you, the buyer, get a piece of the action. Who doesn't want some extra money right now, given inflation and gas prices? Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing, and he wants to help. So visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. You have nothing to lose. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. Book an introductory call with Kellen Hunt at CloseItWithKell.com. If you're trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kel. Visit CloseItWithKel.com and tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. Well, this show is the perfect show to have on the man who I'm about to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast right now. We have a lot to be thinking about with the commanders right now, with all that has been going on between co-owner and co-CEO Dan Snyder and Congress, and with the start of Commander's Training Camp coming up on July 27th. And we have a lot to be thinking about with the Nationals right now, with the massive news this past Saturday afternoon, multiple reports that right fielder Juan Soto has turned down a 15-year, $440 million contract extension offer from the Nats, who now are open to trading him prior to the MLB trade deadline on August 2nd. And so I am very pleased to welcome on right now a man with whom I worked at the Team 980 for years. He is a columnist 
for the Washington Times. Uh, many of you hear him all of the time on the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast. He is the great Tom Lavero, who you can follow on Twitter at Tom Lavero with Tom spelled T-H-O-M. Tommy, how are you? It's great to be on the podcast with the great alcohol. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I have a lot that I want to get to with you, but I have to begin by commending you, Tom, for your new nickname for Dan Snyder. You, over the years, have had many nicknames for many people, but Skipper Dan <laughs> may be at the top of the list. I want you to know that. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. You know, look, I'll give you a little inside baseball here for everyone who's listening. Uh, Jimmy Breslin is my idol. He's like the, the greatest columnist, newspaper columnist in history. And he would give people in power nicknames. It's to diminish them even further than they already diminish themselves. It's basically a, a lack of respect. And I use that vehicle whenever I can for people who need pins stuck in them. And Dan Snyder needs a lot of pins stuck in them. Yeah, I mean, I would say that is an effective vehicle, no doubt, especially for a guy who insists on being called Mr. Snyder, that you don't call yeah. him Mr. Snyder, you call him Skipper Dan. Uh, I would think that that's particularly uh, effective with him. So uh, with Skipper Dan, uh, we still have him not only having not testified before Congress regarding the workplace misconduct scandal, as has been requested multiple times, but Congress still hasn't even been able to serve Dan Snyder with this subpoena that Representative Carolyn B. Maloney announced at the congressional hearing on June 22nd, it right now sure seems like Dan is beating Congress. Do you think that this situation will ultimately play out that way? Well, there doesn't seem to be any road for Congress to get him in front of them, the congressional committee, the way they want to, where they know that he'll have to either answer questions or like a mob boss, plead the fifth to every question that's asked him because he'll be under oath. I don't know if there's a vehicle between now and January where there's this anticipation that the committee's makeup could change, where that could happen. But that would mean Dan Snyder staying out of the country for the entire season. And I don't know if he's capable of that. Uh, he's got such a huge ego. I don't know if he's capable of that. And now, now you've got fans tracking his his uh, movements with his yacht and his plane. So you, you've got actually people tracking where, where in the world is Dan Snyder at this point. You know, there may be a surprise vehicle at some point for Congress to serve Dan with a subpoena if he's overseas. But according to all the experts who have weighed in publicly, that doesn't exist right now. You, in a column that was published on July 7th, had a great opening line, quote, it seems like every word of every sentence of every story that comes out of the House Oversight and Reform Committee's investigation into the Washington commanders paints a more troubling picture of Dan Snyder than before, end quote. I mean, people can disagree on whether Congress should be doing what it's doing with the commanders, but everyone agrees on what the team has in Dan Snyder as an owner. And yet still, of course, he remains the owner. We know that Congress can only do so much to and with Dan, but we do still have the results of the Mary Jo White investigation that'll be coming out. Do you think that those results could lead to the other NFL owners having no choice but to oust Dan as commander's owner? You know, logic tells me 
that the NFL has to get want to get rid of this guy. I mean, this this is a shameful, embarrassing situation that an owner of an NFL football team in the United States of America won't testify truthfully before Congress. Is doing everything he can. That's a that is a major major embarrassment for the NFL on Capitol Hill. And it's just one embarrassment after another. So you would think that uh, if Roger, like I think he's prone to do, you know, massages the outcome of, of an investigation, you would think he would massage this Jerry, Mary Jo White investigation, if he can, into something that would, that would give them the tools they need to get rid of Dan Snyder. Uh, you know, don't forget, He's under investigation by three attorney generals right now, okay? In Virginia, in D.C., and D.C.'s looking at everything, not just the money situation. Virginia's looking at the money, and Maryland, okay? So he has three separate state investigations going on right now into the questions of whether or not uh, they did some financial misconduct with, with the sharing the ticket money, and for D.C., the uh, attorney general there is looking at much more than that. How much power that will have in D.C. remains to be seen because I think the stadium is a dead issue there. But I'll be real curious what happens in Virginia uh, with uh, 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 my, my, the Minias investigation, the Aris investigation. The entire Dan Snyder situation really is absurd when you think about it. Like, I almost feel like we've all become desensitized to it because this has been a thing for so long. But when you actually spell it out, like all of the investigations and him uh, remaining overseas to avoid being subpoenaed by Congress, it's like, how did we get to this point? I mean, this really is amazing when you think about it. He's like Hyman Roth in Godfather 2. <laughs> he really is. Who, who, who's afraid to enter the country because he'll get around. He's trying to, to, to grease somebody so he can get in the country. This really is like a mob boss situation. It's exactly what it's like. This is what mob bosses do. Yeah, and you would know because you used to cover organized crime, right? Yes. Yes, I did. So I'm familiar with this tactic. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, so another column that you wrote recently had to do with the mess that was slash is commandlegacy.com and all of the errors on the site, which was an attempt to honor the 80 greatest members of the Commander's franchise and set up a vote to add 10 more greatest members of the Commander's franchise. I want to get your take on the team president, Jason Wright. We all get that the Commander's biggest problems start at the top with Dan Snyder, but we now have a lengthy list of things that fall under the purview of Jason Wright that have not gone well. You know, whether you're talking about the retirement of Sean Taylor's number 21 or the rollout of the new name or the crest, uh, now commandlegacy.com. What's your opinion of the job that Jason Wright is doing? I think Jason Wright's only accomplishment has been he's not Bruce Allen. That's pretty much it. That's what if if I was putting in the pro category of pro and cons, he's not Bruce Allen. I mean, he really he's been a major disappointment. I mean, look, all these are under his under his direction. I mean, he's in charge of this part of the operation, and it's it's just been a disaster. I and mean, this name thing to me, which I wrote in the column, if you can't even get 
a name, the names of a list of your own players right. How can you possibly get the big things right? How can you possibly get the, something as major as changing a culture of an organization when you can't even get the small things right? Uh, you know, uh, I've always said if things look bad from the outside, they're usually much worse on the inside. I think you can take that to heart with this organization. And uh, Jason Wright, you know, probably not to the length of some other people, but if and when he leaves, let's put the stadium at his feet, too. I mean, one of the reasons, I mean, one of his duties is to get a stadium, uh, you know, for his team. And the stadium search has been an absolute train wreck for them. So uh, I think with and when he'll le- he leaves, he won't have the total taint of working for this organization, but his star will be diminished. So this underwhelming nature of Jason Wright's tenure as team president so far, what do you think that that's about? Because I think that most people would agree that Jason Wright is a smart person. He certainly seems to be a good person. Is he just up against a force in Dan Snyder that Jason Wright cannot overcome? Uh, is Jason himself overwhelmed by the job? Is he in over his head? Has he hired the wrong people? What do you think his struggles are truly about? Well, a lot of it is beyond his control. I mean, of all teams to have on-the-job training for, because he's never really run anything, okay? And now you're running an NFL fran- business franchise, and you're running the, the, the arguably one of the worst franchises in all sports. So your, your task is like triple-fold harder than it would normally be. So I think he has been over his head. I think uh, if you believe that he has flushed out a lot of the toxic uh, people who may have worked there, and I, I'm going to give him uh, the benefit of the doubt that maybe he has done that, then you're left with the incompetent ones. Okay, And that's not necessarily good. Okay, I mean, again, if you, if, if you are want to work for a sports organization, this is a franchise that would be, well, that would be at the bottom of the list. So you're going to get people, I'm sorry to say, I'm sure there's good people who work there, nice people who work there, but you're not going to get the same people who are going to want to work for the Rams or the Patriots or even the Dolphins for that matter. So I just think he's in over his head and he doesn't have a strong organization behind him. We're talking with Washington Times columnist Tom Lavero. In terms of the commanders on the field, uh, head coach Ron Rivera has made it no secret that this coming season needs to be a step forward season. Do you see the commanders this coming season having that step forward season? Well, this is a make or break season for this team, for Ron Rivera, particularly for this team. Not that he would get fired at the end of the season. But there really would be no point in coaching this team any further if they don't have a good season other than just to collect the paycheck at that point. Uh, I can see them winning 10 games. I could see them, you know, I think it's going to be a competitive division. I think the Eagles are going to be really good. I think the Cowboys will be probably as good, if not a little bit better, uh, as long as they can keep their quarterback healthy. Uh, and I don't see this team, even if they rise above expectations in the class with those two. But I could see them possibly winning 10 games. What I see more likely is a Carson Wentz uh, controversy at some point in the middle of the season. 
maybe it could happen earlier, but I'm putting my money on on a fan and a locker room call for Taylor Heineke to take over the job at some point during the season. Wow. <laughs> I mean, th- th- this is the guy that people love. They love this guy. The other guy is coming in with a reputation where nobody likes him. You know, not nobody, but a lot of people didn't like him in two stops. Okay? I guess it's possible that he could change here. But this is not the organization where people normally get better. This is not the place where people get right. And uh, I just think that uh, there won't be a lot of patience for Carson Wentz. Uh, in the locker room and in the stands, not that there's many people left in the stands to do that. And uh, people have fond memories of Taylor Heineke, who, look, I get all the arguments about Carson Wentz, but but they wouldn't have won seven games uh, last year without Taylor Heineke. He won three of them at least on his own. He's limited, absolutely limited. But he has everything that Carson Wentz doesn't have. Yeah, it's like if you could combine... Carson Wentz's physical tools with Taylor Heineke's intangibles, you'd have quite the quarterback. Yes. But it's like each he would have. Yeah. But each he would have Brett Favre then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny with Heineke because when he was good last season, he was really good. The problem was that when he was bad last season, he was really bad. There was that high variance, which is something that we have had with Carson Wentz. His good can be great, but his bad can be awful. So the Nationals, uh, the big news on Saturday afternoon that Juan Soto reportedly has turned down a 15-year, $440 million contract extension offer from the Nats, who now are open to trading Soto. Whether the Nats actually trade Soto this year or not, does it feel to you that Juan Soto's time with the Nats is essentially over, that whether the time ends this season or this offseason or sometime soon after that, that the time is on the verge of ending. Absolutely. He's unsignable right now. Can't sign him. That's obvious. I mean, Boris, some of the comparisons of Juan Soto have been like with Ted Williams. Now, that's a little bit ridiculous because Ted Williams, I think, hit 388 when he was 40 years old. Okay, but that's been sort of like a measure of of the impact of Juan Soto as a player. Well, if Scott Boris had had Ted Williams as a client, he's taken him to free agency. So he's taken he's taken Soto to free agency. And here's what I love Soto. I think he's a terrific young man, but he needs to stop this this thing where where else would I want to play? I love being in Washington. You know, like his contract is some separate entity he has no control over. You know, he needs to stop that. That sounds hollow and ridiculous now. I mean, Boris works for him. He doesn't work for Boris. If he really wanted to stay in Washington, it could happen. So I think he's got to be traded. I think the sooner the better. And everyone dismisses that he'd be traded before the, the, the trading deadline at the end of the month. If I'm a team that has eyed Juan Soto all, all along, I'm trying to make this deal now because he's unsignable for them too. So this way you get two and a half seasons of Juan Soto under your control. The more time, that's the value for the other team. It's not that they think they can sign him to a long-term deal because that's not happening. Okay, So I think that in the next two weeks, if you want Juan Soto, you need to jump in and make your move now. With, with a package that blows the Nationals away. If you're, if you're the Nationals, if you're Mike Rizzo, 
you got to think, well, you know, I just, I just got my, my con, my option picked up. So I'm signed through next year. Do I really want to limp through another year of Juan Soto and the band of unknowns? Or do I want to make some move to really, uh, do this and and in part secure my own future here and then you have the wild card of the new owner i mean that's a real unusual wild card to have in a situation like this i understand why boris and soto maybe don't want to sign here because they don't know who the owner's going to be next year i mean they don't know who the owner he'd be playing for for the next 12 or 13 years would be that's a real uncertainty them and i don't know if you're a new owner if you want the option of taking your swing at the plate to try to sign juan soto or if you'd rather inherit a team with prospects and payroll flexibility which you know you know is a real big key in baseball development yeah no doubt and the ownership uncertainty really is a wild card in all of this and the timing of the ownership uncertainty from a standpoint of the Juan Soto contract situation really couldn't be much worse we know how the learners tend to do things right take their time grind out deals get the best deal possible for them it's part of why they've been so successful financially do you have any sense on when we will have resolution to the Nats ownership uncertainty do you think like by this offseason, we might have resolution, or do you think this is going to take a while? You know, you're right about the learners. They do grind things out. Uh, they do operate slowly. They do uh, negotiate sometimes ridiculous terms that, uh, like I, I wrote a couple weeks ago, they walked, they screwed up a naming rights deal for, for this stadium last year. They were in negotiations with, I think, a defense contract contractor uh for a naming rights deal and uh, they had a deal for uh 18 million dollars a year you know in pretty much in place and then the learners went back and said no we want 20 million and and the company got so frustrated said you know take your naming rights and stick it where the sun doesn't shine so they blew an 18 million dollar a year naming rights deal which is far more than that that stadium is worth that's a 10 to 12 million dollar a year naming rights deal for for this team uh so an 18 million dollar deal was a good deal so that gives you an idea of, of how they negotiate so i think the sale will be the same way it's hard to believe it would go beyond the off season but i think it's possible i know that you years ago had a good relationship with peter angelos and it's funny how things work out. You have the Nationals' ownership uncertainty, and then you have what's going on with the Orioles right now, and this really ugly and public Angelos family feud, and the belief for a while that the Orioles could be up for sale, and who knows how the Angelos family feud might impact all of that. I mean, it's possible, right, that the Nats and the O's could be up for sale at the same time. Do you think that MLB would allow that? Or do you think MLB would structure things so that one team would be up for sale and sold and then the next team would be up for sale and sold? I would think they'd have to structure it in a way. Uh, and I would think the Orioles would be the one that would take the second, the back seat to something like this. But ironically, uh, look, I know Orioles fans are excited and they think the next step in the offseason is that team is going to spend some money now to add to that, you know, that that payroll of, of young talent. But that's not happening. They're not spending any money. 
I mean, they don't have any money and they're not spending it. So this is it. Uh, what you see now is going to be their team pretty much for the foreseeable future. So I think in a way, the Orioles, because they'll have a low payroll with a lot of young talent, may be a better buy, a better deal than the Nationals at this point. But I, I do think that it would be really hard to imagine, unless it's beyond their control, the uh, both teams being on the market at the same time. I mean, I think the Nationals, you know, right now are well over $2 billion in value. I don't think the Orioles are there, but I think if you wanted to own a baseball team and you look at just, like I said, payroll flexibility, uh, and that could change with a Soto deal, the Orioles have tremendous payroll flexibility for someone who wants to spend money. Peter Angelos has been in failing health for years. There has been a belief for years that when Peter's time comes, the Angelos family will sell the Orioles. Uh, Now, this ongoing Angelos family rift may certainly be complicating things. Uh, Louis Angelos on June 9th filed a lawsuit against his brother, John Angelos, and their mother, Georgia Angelos, for control of the O's. So we'll obviously see what comes of that. But Do you think that when Peter passes, the Angelos family will sell the O's? Or do you think that the O's are going to be staying in the Angelos family for years to come? Well, I've been told by uh, sources that are very credible that it's in Peter Angelos' will that once he passes on, the team would be sold. So I think it will be sold. No matter how this pissing match goes on between the Angelos brothers. And neither one. I know they put the... uh, the, uh, MLB agreed to let John Angelos be the control person. But once Peter moves on, and uh, God bless him, you know, he's been hanging on for for a long time, I think this team will be up for sale. Like I said, it may be delayed until the Nationals sale uh, is, is, is finished. But no, I mean, there'll be new owners for the Baltimore Orioles within the next two years. Peter Angelos bought the Orioles in August 1993. Do I remember this correctly that Peter at one point like asked you for advice or something like that? Well, in the early days of Angelos' ownership, he loved the newspaper guys. And I used to talk to him, and I wasn't the only one. The, the, the Sun and the Post would talk to him too. But I used to talk to him three or four times a week. Uh, I used to, I'd go... We'd sit in one of the empty suites at Camden Yards and watch a game together. It was ridiculous how much access I had. And sometimes, because he'd give you information, he'd expect something from you. Uh, In other words, if he had a question for you, he wouldn't expect you to say, well, I can't really do that, uh, Mr. Angelos. I always called him Mr. Angelos. I can't really do that because that really wouldn't be right. You know, he didn't want to hear that. So there was a time when... Going into the 95 season, they needed a center fielder. And they had Curtis Goodwin, who was their t- one of their big prospects, down in the minor leagues. And they were debating whether or not to bring him up or not. So Peter's asking me, what should I do? So I said, uh, well, you should try to you know, find a center fielder on the free agent market who needs to prove himself. A guy who's had a good track record, but had a down year and needs to prove himself to get a new contract. Uh, and I suggested Andy Van Slyke. And three days later, they signed Andy Van Slyke. <laughs> and he was an absolute disaster for the Orioles. I don't even think he hit 200 and was gone by the beginning of July, I think. 
That's my GM move. We can blame you for that. I find it funny, though, because I know you've also relayed the story of Dan Snyder having been a fan of a Redskins book that you wrote, Hail Victory. So you actually have had good relations to varying degrees with both Peter Angelos and Dan Snyder. How many people can say that, Tom? Well, I wouldn't go as far as say I had a good relationship with Dan Snyder. I had a good postal relationship with Dan Snyder. He sent me the books through the mail and I autographed them for him. That's the extent of my relationship with Dan Snyder, a guy who I've never met. I've never spoken to in person. That's funny. Well, and he, of course, owned our radio station for a good number of years, uh, but I don't think it ever really uh, set foot in there. Well, Tom, my friend, I appreciate your perspective. I continue to enjoy reading you and hearing you. Uh, Thanks so much for your time and all the best to you. Thanks a lot, Baldy. Good luck to you, buddy. All right, great to catch up with Tom Lavero. I'm going to go in-depth on the big Juan Soto news from Saturday afternoon in moments, but there's nothing bigger than the well-beings of you and those who you care about. And so if you or someone who you care about has been plagued by the negligence of someone else, do not hesitate to contact the law firm of Paulson and Nace. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611 and make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C., and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace can help your family make difficult decisions, and Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. Chris Nace is a past president of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. It's very simple. If you're the case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yet you're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace take care of your family. All right, before we get to what happened in the first round of the 2022 MLB draft on Sunday night, before we get to what happened with the Nationals on the field over the weekend, uh, let us get into what was the biggest Nats development over the weekend, the blockbuster Juan Soto news. Saturday afternoon, multiple reports that Nats right fielder Juan Soto has turned down a 15-year, $440 million contract extension offer from the Nats, who thus have become open to trading Soto prior to the MLB trade deadline, which is on Tuesday, August 2nd at 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Yes, massive Washington, D.C. sports news. 
on Saturday afternoon. Now, the language of the Nats potentially trading Soto is notable. The person who broke the news, MLB insider Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic, tweeted that the Nats would, quote, now entertain trading, end quote, Soto. Uh, Nats insider Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post, he tweeted that Soto turning down this 15-year, $440 million contract extension offer from the Nats made, quote, the Nationals more likely to entertain trade offers now and in the future, end quote. Uh, Obviously, there's a difference between entertaining trading Juan Soto and actually being intent on trading Juan Soto. But the point is clear. Juan Soto is available via trade. And this is in direct contrast to what Nats president of baseball operations and general manager Mike Rizzo said on the Sports Junkies on 106.7 The Fan on June 1st. Quote, we are not trading Juan Soto. We've made it clear to his agent and to the player, we have every intention of building this team around Juan Soto. We've spoken to his agent many, many times, recently sat with him when he was in Washington, D.C., made it clear to him that we are not interested in trading him, and I guess the rest of the world just doesn't believe it, but that's our position, end quote. So that was Mike Rizzo on June 1st, but as I said at the time, what Mike Rizzo said right there uh, was in the present tense. We are not trading Juan Soto, as in at this present time. We are not trading Juan Soto. Rizzo never said that the approach couldn't change, and clearly the approach has changed. Now, before we go any further, I want to say this. Saturday really was a sad day from a Nats perspective. You know, you think about the environment in which this Juan Soto news broke. These reports of Juan Soto having turned down a 15-year $440 million contract extension offer from the Nats and them thus having become open to trading him prior to the MLB trade deadline came in the midst of the Nats having lost eight consecutive games and 14 of the team's previous 15 games and having the worst record and run differential in the majors in the 2022 regular season. And then the Nats went out and lost again. A 6-3 loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park on Saturday, giving the Nats nine consecutive losses and 15 losses in 16 games. And the game included a one-hour, 49-minute rain delay. What a terrible day Saturday ended up being for the Nats. But the worst part of the day for the Nats was this Juan Soto development, which in a lot of ways felt like the end of the Nats having Juan Soto. This was a brutal development at a brutal time, if you're a Nats fan. When it comes to the Nats' actual offer, this 15-year, $440 million contract extension offer to Juan Soto, here to me is the bottom line with the offer. The offer wasn't good enough. As crazy as it sounds, the offer wasn't good enough. You know, the Nats throughout this Juan Soto contract situation have needed to make Juan Soto a godfather offer, an offer that he couldn't refuse. The 15-year, $440 million contract extension offer was an offer that could be and thus was refused. And here's why. First of all, the offer worked out to an average annual value, an AAV of $29.33 million. That is a ton of money to you and me, obviously. But in the world of Major League Baseball, for a superstar generational talent as Juan Soto is, 
a $29.33 million AAV is a low AAV. Any Nationals contract extension offer to Juan Soto that's going to be good enough to be accepted by Soto needs to have a very high AAV. An AAV of $29.33 million isn't high enough. Soto, in accepting that offer, and via a 15-year contract extension, would have left tens of millions of dollars on the table, if not hundreds of millions of dollars on the table. I mean, understand that a $29.33 million AAV would not have even ranked in the top 10 of AAVs in MLB for the 2022 season. How would that AAV have looked in three years, in five years, in 10 years? Assuming that Juan Soto stayed healthy and productive, the AAV would have been an absolute bargain for the Nats. And Juan Soto's not a dummy. He realizes this. Juan Soto's agent, Scott Boris, isn't a dummy. He realizes this. Uh, Second of all, the Nats' 15-year, $440 million contract extension offer to Juan Soto reportedly uh, was backloaded. Uh, Now, technically, backloaded money is not deferred money, which has been a staple of contract offers from the Nats' owners, the learners for years. But backloaded money is similar to deferred money, especially when you're talking about a 15-year contract. Backloaded money in a five-year contract is one thing. Backloaded money in a 15-year contract is really not unlike deferred money. So this Nats offer of a 15-year, $440 million contract extension to Juan Soto, yes, was a legitimate offer, but no, was not the godfather offer that it needed to be, especially when you consider everything else going on with the Nats. And the everything else is a big part of everything with this Juan Soto contract situation. The Nats' ownership uncertainty. The fact that the Nats right now are a terrible team. The fact that the Nats' farm system remains not very good. You throw all of that into the mix with this below market value contract extension offer, and it's no wonder that Juan Soto rejected the Nats' offer of a 15-year, $440 million contract extension. When you're trying to sign a superstar, a generational talent like Juan Soto to a contract extension, when you are trying to entice a superstar, a generational talent like Juan Soto to forego free agency, to pass on being in the open market, you need to overwhelm him with a contract extension offer. This offer was not an overwhelming offer given who Soto is and given the marketplace and given the current state of the Nats. Now, whether the Nats are better off giving Juan Soto a 15-year, $440 million contract extension versus not spending all of that money on one player and diversifying the resources, that's a different conversation, okay? As I have noted There's an argument to be made that no Major League Baseball team should ever give any player a mega money contract because of the frequency with which these mega money contracts do not work out. Now, I think Juan Soto could be an exception, especially given not just his talent, but his youth. You know, it's not like you'd be paying him for nothing but his 30s. Like, no, there are still many years left in Juan Soto's 20s. Uh, But yeah, that's besides the point. If you truly want to sign Juan Soto to a contract extension, you need to overwhelm him. The Nats did not overwhelm him. Now, another major aspect of the Juan Soto news from Saturday afternoon is where did this news come from? You have to wonder who leaked the news. Anytime that there's news like this, you should always ask the question, 
where'd the news come from? Who was the leaker slash who were the leakers? You know, Juan Soto on Saturday afternoon was not at all happy about this news having been leaked. Take a listen to Soto in a pregame session with reporters on Saturday afternoon. Anything that you want to know, just ask Scott. Yeah, he has everything for you guys. So for me, yeah. Just gonna keep playing baseball. Is it frustrating to you that this stuff comes out that it's public and that it's, it's not not just between you and the team? It, it is. It is. Uh, it feels really bad uh, to see stuff going out like that because uh, I'm a guy to keep everything on my side, keep everything quiet, and try to keep it just the enemy. But they just take the decision and do whatever they need to do. When you're going to the All-Star break, this is a weekend that's supposed to be for fun. So how are you able to kind of put this aside and just be able to focus on that if you're able to? I mean, it won't, it won't happen. It won't do any damage to my weekend. I'm going to try to enjoy as much as I can. You know, it feels, <clears throat> it feels a little uncomfortable at the beginning, but I would be fine. One, you, you talked recently about wanting to be here, um, not necessarily wanting to be traded. Um, have those feelings changed at all, or would you like to be in Washington if things worked out? I mean, for me, uh, uh, this is the team I've been since, what, 2015. Uh, I've been with this team, and I feel good with it. And when I get to know the city more, it feels great. Why should I need to change? All right. So said Juan Soto in a pregame session with reporters on Saturday afternoon, quote, it feels really bad to see stuff going out like that because I'm a guy who my side keeps everything quiet and try to keep it to them and me, end quote. And if you have seen the video of Soto speaking to reporters on Saturday afternoon, you know that he did not look happy. Uh, we saw a Juan Soto who we rarely see. We saw an unhappy Juan Soto on Saturday afternoon. Soto appeared to be legitimately ticked off about this news having been leaked. And certainly it wouldn't have made much sense for Soto's camp to have leaked this news. And so the conclusion that you're left with is that Soto's camp did not leak the news. And so if Soto's camp did not leak the news, well, then who else would have leaked the news? And you have to wonder if the Nats, in fact, leaked the news. Leaked the news in an attempt to make themselves look good and make Soto look greedy by letting it be known that he had turned down $440 million, even though, as I just discussed, the contract was a below-market-value contract in multiple ways. As you probably know, the tradition of teams in contract situations with players leaking terms of contract proposals that the players have turned down is a long-standing time-honored tradition. We had that not that long ago with the Redskins and quarterback Kirk Cousins. This Juan Soto news coming out of nowhere on a Saturday afternoon in the middle of July reeked of the Nats having put the news out there in order to let it be known that, hey, we tried to sign Juan Soto to a contract extension, but look at what he did. He turned down $440 million. Even though, one more time, the contract was a below market value contract in multiple ways. Uh, you gotta wonder if Juan Soto's relationship with the Nats now has been severely damaged. You gotta wonder if Juan Soto now is really angry with the learners and or 
Mike Rizzo, uh, depending on who Soto blames for the leaking of this news. And you got to wonder who specifically leaked this news. Did the learners leak the news? Did someone associated with the learners leak the news? Did Mike Rizzo leak the news at the order of the learners? Did Mike Rizzo take it upon himself to leak the news in order to ignite a massive bidding war for Juan Soto prior to the MLB trade deadline on August 2nd? Uh, Sad day. Saturday really was a sad day for the Nats. Juan Soto should be the heir apparent to the Capitals' Alex Ovechkin as the number one star in Washington, D.C. sports. Not just because Soto is great, but because Soto has a great personality, Soto has a great charisma, Soto is known to be a great teammate. Like, Juan Soto is set up to be the number one man in D.C. sports for years to come. And instead, Juan Soto now appears to be as good as gone. If not this year, then soon enough. I mean, we'll see if the Nats trade Juan Soto this season, you know, prior to the August 2nd MLB trade deadline. But even if the Nats do not trade Soto prior to the August 2nd MLB trade deadline, it in no way feels like Juan Soto is long for the Nats. Now, all of that said, I do want to leave you with two thoughts that perhaps will make you feel better if you're a Nats fan. Uh, Number one, the wild card in the Juan Soto contract situation remains the Nats ownership situation. And as problematic as the Nats current ownership situation is regarding signing Juan Soto to a long-term big money contract extension, the Nats ownership situation could end up playing out in such a way that the ownership situation ends up making it so that the Nats do sign Juan Soto to a long-term big money contract extension. We have no idea where the learners are in the process of selling part or all of the team. But if the learners sell the team sooner rather than later, and the Nats' new principal owner is some extreme Richie Rich type, a la, say, the New York Mets owner, chairman, and CEO, Steve Cohen. Then if the Nats, for whatever reason, don't trade Soto this season, then maybe possibly new Nats ownership can swoop in and make Soto that godfather contract extension offer necessary to get him to sign a contract extension. New Nats ownership, depending on how it is, could change everything in the Juan Soto contract situation from a standpoint of making it more likely that he ends up signing a long-term contract extension with the Nats. But until there's new ownership, or at the very least, until the ownership situation is settled, why would Soto sign a long-term contract extension with the Nats? How could anyone commit to any team or any entity for a long time with that team's or entity's ownership situation up in the air? Like, how and why would you commit to something when you don't know who is going to be running that something moving forward? Number two, as big of a deal as the Juan Soto contract situation is, it isn't the biggest issue facing the Nats. You know, it's interesting to me that the news of Juan Soto having turned down this 15-year, $440 million contract extension offer from the Nats and them thus having become open to trading him prior to the MLB trade deadline came out on the weekend of the start of the 2022 MLB draft. There's something poetic about that. Because the number one reason for the Nats falling off a cliff since their 2019 World Series championship season is their bad farm system, which is a result of bad drafting and bad player development. Nothing, and I mean nothing, matters more for the Nats right now than them getting back to being good at drafting and developing players. 
What happens with Juan Soto is a big deal, but no deal for the Nats is bigger than them getting back to being good at drafting and developing players. For all of the talk about the Juan Soto contract situation, there has not been nearly enough talk of what has happened to the Nats regarding drafting and developing players. The key to sustained success in Major League Baseball isn't having superstars on contracts worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Like I said earlier, the truth is that most of those contracts don't work out. There very much is an argument that the Nats would be better off not signing Juan Soto to a mega money long-term contract extension because no player is worth 400 plus million dollars. Baseball is not a sport in which one player can make enough of a difference to where he's worth 400 plus million dollars. You can at least make that case. Baseball is not basketball. In the NBA, one guy can make all the difference. Baseball does not work that way. The key to sustained success in Major League Baseball is having a constant pipeline of quality young players under team control for years to come. The Nats don't have that pipeline right now. And that more than anything is why the Nats are in the state that they're in. And there's irony here because in the 2018-2019 offseason, the Nats very clearly weren't that interested in spending mega money to re-sign free agent outfielder Bryce Harper. And do you remember one of the biggest reasons why? The Nats had not one, but two very promising young outfielders named Victor Robles and Juan Soto. The Nats had the pipeline of quality young players under team control for years to come. Now, things have gone awry with Robles, but Soto has become an even better player than anyone ever expected. And now he's the guy commanding the mega money contract. And that the Nats now do not have the pipeline from which Soto came is their number one problem. When it comes to reestablishing that pipeline, Sunday night was a big night as we on Sunday night had the first round of the 2022 MLB draft. The Nats had the number five pick. The Orioles had the number one pick. My thoughts on what each team did after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. All right, so we on Sunday evening had the start of the 2022 MLB draft, a draft in which the Nationals had a top five pick and the Orioles had a top five pick. Uh, The Nats had the number five overall pick. The O's had the number one overall pick. Uh, The Nats with the number five pick took outfielder Elijah Green out of IMG Academy in Florida. Uh, Elijah Green is 18 years old. He's a big kid. He's listed as being 6'3 and 225 pounds. He's the son of a former NFL player. Uh, Elijah Green is the son of former NFL tight end Eric Green, who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Miami Dolphins, the Baltimore Ravens, and the New York Jets in a 10-season NFL career that lasted from 1990 through 1999. Eric Green was actually a pretty good tight end uh, for a period of time in the 1990s. Uh, MLB Pipeline ranked Elijah Green as the number three prospect in the 2022 MLB draft. So this was potentially a nice value pick by the Nats, getting the number three prospect in the draft per MLB pipeline with the number five pick. Now, will Elijah Green turn out to be a great player for the Nats? Who knows? Uh, Projecting what's going to happen with players taken in MLB drafts is hard enough. It's especially difficult when you're talking about someone like an Elijah Green who's coming out of high school, right? Coming out of IMG Academy in Florida. I do know this. The Nats desperately need Elijah Green to turn out to be a really good player for them. Uh, The Nats have gotten way too little out of picks in MLB drafts for years now. Uh, This is a major reason for why the Nats are in the state that the Nats currently are in. I mean, here's all that you need to know. The Nats haven't had a true hit with a first round pick in an MLB draft since taking third baseman Anthony Rendon out of Rice with the number six pick in the 2011 MLB draft. Think about that. 2011, 11 years ago. That's the last time the Nats had a first round pick in an MLB draft who ended up being a hit for the Nats. Uh, That's not good. It's very hard to win that way. And in a lot of ways, it makes what the Nats did in having eight consecutive winning seasons from 2012 through 2019, (laughs) even more impressive. But, you know, you had that nice run of one hit after another by the Nats with first-round picks in MLB drafts. 2009, the Nats took starting pitcher Steven Strasburg out of San Diego State with the number one pick, took reliever Drew Storm out of Stanford with the number 10 pick. 
2010. The Nats took outfielder Bryce Harper out of Southern Nevada Junior College with the number one pick. 2011. The Nats took third baseman Anthony Rendon out of Rice with the number six pick and took starting pitcher Alex Meyer out of Kentucky with the number 23 pick. Now, Meyer ended up not panning out as a major league pitcher, but the Nats traded Meyer to the Minnesota Twins for outfielder Denard Spann in November 2012, and Spann ended up being a nice player for the Nats. So from 2009 through 2011, the Nats did a lot of good with their first-round picks. Uh, Even the Nats' 2012 first-round pick, starting pitcher Lucas Giolito, the Nats took him out of a California high school with the number 16 pick. Now, he ended up not panning out for the Nats, and they ended up seeing him pan out for the Chicago White Sox, but Giolito was a part of a trade that brought back outfielder Adam Eaton, who ended up being a key player for the Nats on their 2019 World Series championship team. But really starting with 2014 and since then, it has been one miss after another for the Nats with first-round picks in MLB drafts. 2014 starting pitcher Eric Fetty. 2016 shortstop slash second baseman, now third baseman Carter Keboom. And starting pitcher Dane Dunning. 2017 pitcher Seth Romero, who was drafted to be a starting pitcher, uh, has been more of a reliever lately and has been a complete bust. 2018, starting pitcher Mason Denneberg, who has dealt with a lot in the way of injury. 2019, starting pitcher Jackson Rutledge, who has dealt with injury and ineffectiveness. 2020, starting pitcher Cade Cavalli, uh, he is the Nats' number one prospect right now. We'll see what ends up happening with him, and hopefully he'll be making his major league debut sooner rather than later. And 2021, shortstop slash third baseman Brady House. So yeah, I mean, you know, some of these guys obviously are to be determined, but where are the hits, man? Okay, where are the guys who have proven it to be true building blocks, true foundational pieces for the Nats? And, you know, it's not just first round picks, with whom the Nats have had major problems in recent years. The Nats haven't had like anything in the way of diamonds in the rough in MLB drafts. The Nats have had way too few non-first-round pick hits in MLB drafts in recent years. So yeah, this is a big deal. Elijah Green, Brady House, Cade Cavalli, these guys need to pan out for the Nats if this team is going to be good again sooner rather than than later. Uh, for the O's, so they on Sunday evening took shortstop Jackson Holiday out of a high school in Oklahoma with the number one pick in the 2022 MLB draft. Uh, Holiday is 18 years old. Uh, he's listed as being 6'1 and 175 pounds. Holiday, in fact, has the same birthday as the Nats' first round pick, Elijah Green, has. Uh, each guy was born on the same day, December 4th. 2003, and each guy is the son of a former big-time pro athlete. Elijah Green, the son of former NFL tight end Eric Green. Jackson Holiday, the son of former Major League outfielder Matt Holiday. Uh, Jackson Holiday, in his senior season in high school, set a national record with 89 hits, uh, broke a mark previously held by Philadelphia Phillies catcher JT Real Muto, MLB Pipeline ranked Holiday as the number two prospect in the 2022 MLB draft. Uh, the Orioles for years were atrocious in MLB drafts. That's one of the bigger reasons for why the O's had 14 consecutive losing seasons, 1998 through 2011. The O's from 1999 through 2009 had a brutal run of first round picks 
in MLB drafts. Nothing was worse than the Orioles' 1999 draft. They, in that draft, had four of the top 23 picks, five of the top 34 picks, and seven of the top 50 picks, and had just one true hit. Uh, And the true hit was the last of those picks, shortstop Brian Roberts out of the University of North Carolina at pick number 50. Uh, The O's have been better in recent years, and while, you know, the jury is out on a good number of these guys, right now you feel pretty good about the bulk of these guys. 2015, the O's took then shortstop Ryan Mountcastle with the number 36 pick out of a high school in Florida. Mountcastle right now, very much a hit. Uh, 2016 was a whiff. The O's took pitcher Cody Sedlock out of Illinois with the number 27 pick. He dealt with injury and ineffectiveness, and uh, the O's earlier this month actually traded Sedlock to the Detroit. Tigers for cash considerations. The jury is out on the rest of these recent picks, but right now you do feel good about them. 2017, the O's took starting pitcher D.L. Hall out of a high school in Georgia with the number 21 pick. 2018, the O's took starting pitcher Grayson Rodriguez out of a high school in Texas with the number 11 pick. Uh, Both Rodriguez and Hall are rated among the top pitching prospects in baseball right now. 2019, the O's took catcher Adley Rutschman out of Oregon State with the number one pick. Uh, 2020, the O's took outfielder Heston Kerstad out of Arkansas with the number two pick. 2021, the O's took outfielder Colton Kowser out of Sam Houston State with the number five pick. I've talked about the rise of the Orioles farm system. The O's, as we speak here, have the number one farm system in baseball per MLB pipeline. Five of the top 93 prospects in the sport are Orioles prospects, and three of the five are relatively recent first-round picks. Uh, Number four prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline, starting pitcher Grayson Rodriguez. Number 41 prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline, outfielder Colton Kowser. Number 66 prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline, starting pitcher D.L. Hall. So obviously the MLB draft is not like the NFL draft or the NBA draft for a lot of different reasons, but The MLB draft still matters a whole lot when it comes to trying to build up a roster and trying to be a good team and trying to enjoy sustained success. And it's almost impossible to have sustained success in Major League Baseball without drafting well. Uh, The O's have gotten better at drafting in recent years. Uh, You know, you can't plant the flag of victory just yet, but the team is in much better shape today as compared to say four years ago, and hopefully this selection of Jackson Holiday continues that trend. The Nats right now are in a bad way. The Major League team is awful. The farm system is very much lacking. The Nats need all of the help that they can get. The Nats need all of the quality young players that the team can acquire And hopefully this guy, Elijah Green, can be a key piece for the Nats moving forward. Well, the Nationals may have the worst record in the majors and the worst run differential in the majors, and the Nats may well be on the verge of trading their best player right fielder Juan Soto, but at least the Nats are not going into the All-Star break on a 10-game losing streak. Uh, The Nats finally, mercifully, win a game on Sunday afternoon. A 7-3 win over the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park to A, avoid a four-game sweep, B, snap a nine-game losing streak, and C, notch a second win in this month of July. The Nats this month now are 2-14. and And so Nats manager Davey Martinez, for at least a few days, can be proud of the boys. I'm proud of the boys. 
Yes, exactly, Davey. Uh, the Nats, from June 26th through June 28th, won three consecutive games. The Nats, since that three-game winning streak, had gone 1-15 and until Sunday afternoon's win over the Braves. Uh, yeah, the Nats had lost nine consecutive games and 15 of 16 games. Here was Nats manager Davey Martinez during his post-game session with reporters on Sunday afternoon. You know, hopefully, you know, uh, they take some out of this game today going forward. And uh, after after the break, we come back and continue the momentum. I mean, that's that's the biggest thing. So there's still a lot of things that, you know, that we got we need to clean up you know, to, to really get better and compete every day and, and play consistent. So uh, we're going to work on those things a lot, you know, this this next half uh, as we've been doing. So but, uh, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm happy to, to go on the break with, with a big win, you know, and a big win for those guys. It's it's awesome to see those guys smiling and playing music and, and jumping up and down. So um, let's 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 make it a habit. How would you assess the first half of the season? What, what would we be? How would you sum it up? Yeah, um, you, you know, when I look back, you know, uh, it's a lot of growing pains, really. I mean, um, you know, and but you know, I've seen uh, as we talked earlier today with the coaches, I've seen some good things. You know, I see some things that we, you know that we need to address and continue to work on. Um, yeah, but it's gonna, you know, it's, we're, we're we're not giving up, and we're gonna keep continue to play hard. And um, I really believe that the guys that we have, uh, especially young guys. I think they're going to be really good players. I really do. And, uh, and like I said, with with the effort that they're giving right now, uh, we clean some things up. You're gonna, you're, we're going to see some production. We're going to see some good baseball out of them. Yeah, so for the Nats in this four-game series against the Braves at Nationals Park, Thursday night, a 5-4 loss. Friday night, an 8-4 loss. Saturday, a 6-3 loss. But Sunday afternoon, a 7-3 win, improving the Nats in the 2022 regular season to just 8-36 and against the National League East and just 31 and 63 overall that is the worst record in the majors. Uh the Nats weekend really was about what broke on Saturday afternoon, multiple reports that Juan Soto has turned down a 15-year, $440 million contract extension offer from the Nats who thus have become open to trading him prior to the MLB trade deadline which is on Tuesday, August 2nd at 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, also, the Nats weekend was about what they did with the number five overall pick on Sunday night in the first round of the 2022 MLB draft. But there are some things worth mentioning from this series with the Braves. And Juan Soto is one of those things. Uh, Soto was the Nats starting right fielder and number three batter in all four games in the series. And he had a good series. Uh, Soto in the series, five for 14 with a home run, a double, three singles, and three walks. And the homer came on Sunday afternoon. Soto on Sunday afternoon, one for four with a solo homer. He and Nats one run eighth, smashed a leadoff homer to right field for a 7-3 Nats lead. Uh, the homer was Soto's 20th homer of the 2022 regular season, for which Soto now has an OPS of 9-0-2. For all of the talk that we've had about Soto having a down season by his standards, he really has caught fire over the last few weeks and is entering the All-Star break with a 9.02 OPS. Soto's OPS for the 2022 regular season through June 22nd was 7.96. So he in less than a month has raised his OPS by 106 points. But as good as Juan Soto was in the series, no Nats player was better in the series than Josh Bell was. And whereas Juan Soto made the National League All-Star team for this season, 
Uh, Josh Bell did not, at least not yet. I mean, maybe something changes uh, before the All-Star game on Tuesday night at Dodger Stadium. But as things stand right now, Josh Bell is not a member of the National League All-Star team. And that's a shame because he deserves to be a member of the National League All-Star team. Josh Bell was a monster in this series. He was an starting first baseman at number four batter in all four games in the series. Check this out. Bell in the series, nine for 16 with a homer, a triple, two doubles, five singles, and two walks. <laughs> what an offensive force Bell was. Uh, Bell on Thursday night, two for five with a solo homer and a single. Bell on Friday night, three for four with two doubles, a single, and a walk. Bell on Saturday, three for four with an RBI triple, an RBI single, and another single. He did commit an error. And Bell on Sunday afternoon, one for three with a single and a walk. Uh, Josh Bell in the 2022 regular season now has an OPS of 894. He's almost certainly going to be traded by the Nats by that August 2nd MLB trade deadline. We'll see what happens with Juan Soto, but Bell, uh, he's definitely gone, unless somehow the Nats end up signing him to a contract extension prior to then, but I don't know of anyone who expects that to happen. Uh, Bell is in the midst of a contract season, and he is having a terrific season. Uh, the other third of the Nats' big three batters, uh, Nelson Cruz, uh, he still figures to get traded by that August 2nd MLB trade deadline, but he has had a disappointing season, and he did not play in either of the final two games in the series due to quad tightness. Uh, not much else to note offensively for the Nats in this series. Kate Ruiz did have a rough series. He was an Nats starting catcher in games one, two, and four. He was an Nats starting DH in game three. Uh, Ruiz in the series just one for 15 with a single two walks and an RBI. But also in the series was a home run for Victor Robles. Yeah, Victor Robles actually homered in this series. Uh, Robles on Sunday afternoon as an Nats starting center fielder and number nine batter, one for three with a two-run homer. Uh, Robles in the Nats, four-run second, a two-out, two-run homer to left field for a 4-0 Nats lead despite having been down in the count at one point, 1-2. The home run was just Robles's second home run in the 2022 regular season and just his seventh regular season home run since the start of the 2020 regular season. Victor Robles in the 2019 regular season hit 17 home runs. One of the biggest things, if not the biggest thing, about the decline of Victor Robles over the last three seasons has been this like evaporation of his power. Uh, and him homering on Sunday afternoon actually was a reminder of that because it just kind of hits you like, wow, he really like never homers anymore. And sure enough, yeah, just two home runs for Robles in this 2022 regular season. Uh, the most notable outing from an ad starting pitcher in this series was Patrick Corbin's outing in game two. Uh, so Corbin, a few weeks ago, had back-to-back -back really good starts. But the two back-to-back -back really good starts came against lesser offensive teams. A 3-1 win over the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park on June 28th. Corbin in that game, one run in eight innings, 12 strikeouts. He pitched like an ace in that game. And then Corbin in a 3-2 10-inning loss to the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park on July 4th, one run in seven innings. So two consecutive good outings for Patrick Corbin, who of course has been oh so bad since the start of the 2020 season, but the two consecutive good outings came against the Pirates and the Marlins, two teams that are not very good offensive teams. And I noted at the time, I said, you know, it's going to be really telling what Corbin does over his next two outings, which were set to be against the mighty Braves. Well, 4-3 loss at the Braves on July 9th. Corbin, four runs in six innings. And then that brought us to Patrick Corbin's outing 
in Game 2 of this four-game series against the Braves at Nationals Park. And Corbin in the 8-4 loss to the Braves at Nationals Park on Friday night uh, got walloped. Six runs, five earned in five innings. So, so much for Patrick Corbin having been better lately. Uh, He faced lesser offensive teams and to his credit did well, but then he faced the mighty Braves, the reigning defending World Series champion Braves, and he was not very good in the first of the two straight games, and then he was quite bad in the second of the two straight games. Uh, Corbin on Friday night gave up nine hits, two home runs, and seven singles. He issued two walks. Now, he did record eight strikeouts. That was impressive, but he, over his five innings, threw 106 pitches. He, in the top of the first, allowed three runs, two of which were earned. Uh, He wasn't helped out by his defense in that inning. That is true. Nat shortstop Luis Garcia committed a one-out throwing error, made a terrible one-hop throw to first baseman Josh Bell off a routine grounder by Dansby Swanson. But then Corbin gave up a one-out full count opposite field RBI single to Matt Olson through the left side of the infield for a 1-0 Braves lead. And then Corbin gave up a one-out two-run homer to Austin Riley on a bomb to left field for a 3-0 Braves lead. The homer went a projected 419 feet for StatCast. Uh, Corbin in the top of the second allowed a run on three singles, including a two-out first pitch RBI single by Matt Olson to right field for a 4-0 Braves lead. And then Corbin in the top of the fourth allowed a run on two singles and a walk, including another RBI single by Matt Olson, a one-out RBI single by Olson up the middle for a 5-0 Braves lead. Matt Olson on Friday night had three RBI singles over the first four innings of the game. And then Corbin in the top of the fifth gave up another homer. Uh, He gave up a run on a two-out solo homer by Orlando Arcia to left center field for a 6-0 Braves lead. The homer went a projected 409 feet per stat cast. Patrick Corbin now in the 2022 regular season, 19 starts, ERA of 587 and a whip of 170. Uh, Paolo Espino was an ad starting pitcher in their 6-3 loss to the Braves at Nationals Park on Saturday. Four runs, three earned in five and a third innings. Seeing a four-run Braves third gave up a double and back-to-back home runs. A one-out three-run opposite field homer by Matt Olson to left field for a 3-0 Braves lead, followed by a one-out solo homer by Austin Riley to dead center field for a 4-0 Braves lead. Uh, Riley's homer went a projected 418 feet per stat cast. Uh, Paolo in this outing gave up six hits, two homers, two doubles, and two singles. Also issued a hit by pitch, but he did have five strikeouts versus no walks, and he did throw a lot of strikes. 87 pitches, 63 strikes versus 24 balls, but he continues to not be as good as a starting pitcher as he had been as a relief pitcher this season. Uh, Paolo now in the 2022 regular season, 27 games, including seven starts, ERA of 357. Uh, The Nats in their win in this series, the 7-3 win over the Braves at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon, went with a bullpen game. Uh, You know, the Nats were headed into the All-Star break, didn't have to worry about having enough pitchers uh, rested and ready to go for the following day because there was no game the following day. And so the Nats went with a bullpen game on Sunday afternoon, and the results ended up being actually quite good. I mean, the Nats won the game, right? Just their second win over the previous 17 games. But six Nats relievers on Sunday afternoon combined to allow three runs in nine innings with eight strikeouts, and five of the six relievers pitched well. Uh, Erasmo Ramirez started the game. He tossed three scoreless innings. Terrific job by him. Uh, Jordan Weems then came into the game. He was the Nats reliever who struggled in this game. He, in the top of the fourth, allowed three runs, recorded uh, just one out and giving up two doubles, two singles, and an RBI sack fly. But Steve Ciszek then came into the game. He tossed one and two-thirds scoreless innings with two strikeouts. Carl Edwards Jr., then came into the game. He tossed two scoreless innings with three strikeouts. Andres Machado tossed a scoreless top of the eighth. Kyle Finnegan 
tossed a perfect top of the ninth. Really nice job uh, by the Nats bullpen in this bullpen game on Sunday afternoon. And this is a Nats bullpen that now is officially without reliever Sean Doolittle for the rest of the season. Uh, we on Friday afternoon learned that Doolittle is in fact done for the season. Uh, he was to undergo an internal brace procedure as opposed to Tommy John surgery to repair a tear in his left UCL. Uh, the Nats on April 20th put Doolittle on the 10-day injured list with what was termed a left elbow sprain. We on May 4th learned that Doolittle had received one of these platelet-rich plasma injections, PRP injections, uh, in his left elbow, preventing him from throwing until June. And then the Nats uh, on May 4th also transferred Doolittle to the 60-day injured list. So his 2022 regular season ends up lasting for just six appearances. Uh, and he was good over those six appearances. Six games, five and a third scoreless and walkless innings with six strikeouts. Doolittle retired 16 of the 17 batters he faced for the Nats in this 2022 regular season. But he now is out with this elbow ailment that is requiring, again, not Tommy John surgery, but this uh, lesser known procedure called an internal brace procedure. The idea is that the recovery time is a lot less than the recovery time for Tommy John surgery. Uh, this season was Doolittle's age 35 season. So time is not on his side. He had not pitched well in recent years. The Nats in March signed Doolittle to a one-year $1.5 million contract. Um, you know, I don't even know if he'll be back with the Nats next season. Uh, but of course, he is someone who will always be well-regarded uh, by the Nats and by Nats fans, right? He pitched for the Nats uh, for a good chunk of time, July 2017 through the 2020 season, was a key member of the bullpen on the Nats 2019 World Series championship team, uh, but he struggled over the 2019 and 2020 regular seasons with the Nats and then struggled in the 2021 regular season pitching for the Cincinnati Reds and the Seattle Mariners. Uh, the bullpen for the Nats over the course of the games on Friday night and Saturday uh, was mixed. We did have this Hunter Harvey in the 6-3 loss to the Braves at Nationals Park on Saturday. Top of the seventh allowed two runs on a double, a single, and a walk. The Nats on Sunday morning actually optioned Harvey to AAA Rochester, uh, recalled reliever Corey Abbott from Rochester, and then after the game on Sunday afternoon, optioned Abbott uh, back uh, to Rochester. So we did have that roster maneuvering by the Nats over the weekend. And so the Nats now are at their all-star break. Uh, Juan Soto is set to participate in the home run derby on Monday night and is set to play for the National League all-star team in the all-star game on Tuesday night. Davey Martinez will serve as a coach for the National League all-star team in the All-Star Game on Tuesday night. Uh, the Nats will resume their 2022 regular season with a six-game trip out west uh, at the Arizona Diamondbacks July 22nd through the 24th, and then at the Los Angeles Dodgers July 25th through the 27th. And then, not long after that, the MLB trade deadline on August 2nd. So the Nationals on Sunday afternoon avoided a 10-game losing streak. The Orioles on Friday night were denied an 11-game winning streak, and the O's over the weekend ended up losing two or three games at the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, Friday night, a 5-4 loss. Saturday, a 6-4, 11-inning win, but Sunday afternoon, a 7-5 loss. Uh, the Orioles' 10-game winning streak ended with that loss on Friday night. The winning streak was the Orioles' longest single-season, regular-season winning streak since September 1999. So disappointing to see the winning streak end, disappointing to see 
the O's go into the All-Star break uh, with a series loss, again, losing two or three games at the Rays. But still, the O's enter the All-Star break with a record of 46-46 and in the 2022 regular season. Every Orioles fan on the planet would have taken that in a heartbeat entering this season. And the O's enter the All-Star break very much in postseason contention. The O's, yes, are last in the American League East, but the O's are just three and a half games behind the Toronto Blue Jays for the American League's third wildcard spot. Here was O's manager Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters on Sunday afternoon. I feel really good, you know, I, even today. Like we, we, get, we get down a ton early and we battle back in the game. We load the bases. We, we, don't, we don't come through there. Um, but we had the tying run on tying run of the plate in the eighth. Uh, so I think we have a lot of fight. And, and um, you know, we've been playing really good baseball past the, the three-week mark of the first three weeks of the season. Um, so I think, uh, you know, we, we lost this series. That's disappointing. But we're playing good baseball, and, and uh, we're getting a, everybody's getting a much-deserved All-Star break and come back ready to go. The Yankees are obviously who they are, but when you see you, the Rays, the Red Sox, and the Jays, is it just kind of you know rough and tumble? Who knows who's going to come out of this? Oh, at the end. Yeah, there's all, it's every team is is playing well and good clubs, and um, really happy with how you know we're. We we're, stay, we're right in games, like even today, even get down a bunch early, and um, we're really competitive. So uh, we're playing a great division with, with a bunch of good teams, and, and uh, we just got to continue to fight and battle like we, like we have been. Yeah, not sure what was up with the banging in the background there, but I do know what was up with Adley Rutschman over the weekend. Uh, he was really good. The rise of Adley Rutschman continues. Uh, Rutschman in the Orioles' lone win in the series, the 6-4, 11-inning win at the Rays on Saturday. Tremendous off the bench. He and the Orioles' one-run eighth had a pinch leadoff solo homer to right field to tie the game at three. Rutschman in the bottom of the eighth threw out Randy Arozarena on an attempted steal of third base for the second out, and Rutschman in the Orioles' one-run tenth had a one-out RBI sack fly for a 4-3 Orioles lead, and then Rutschman in the 7-5 loss at the Rays on Sunday afternoon as the Orioles' starting catcher and number six batter, two for four with a double and an RBI single. Uh, Rutschman for the month of July has an OPS of 795. He has looked so much better at the plate over these last few weeks as compared to his first few weeks in the majors. Uh, Austin Hayes had multiple good games in the series. Hayes in the 5-4 loss at the Rays on Friday night as the Orioles starting right fielder and number five batter, two for three with a double and a single. Hayes on Sunday afternoon as the Orioles starting right fielder and number five batter, two for four with a solo homer and a single. Uh, Austin Hayes, to me, has been the Orioles' best player so far this season. Uh, how about Ramon Arias in this series? This, in a lot of ways, was the Ramon Arias series. Uh, he had some series for the O's. Uh, Arias on Friday night as the Orioles' starting third baseman and number seven batter, two for four with two home runs. He had a two-run homer and a solo homer. Arias on Saturday as the Orioles' starting second baseman and number six batter, two for four with two doubles, including in the Orioles' one-run second, a one-out RBI double to the left center field warning track where Ray center fielder Josh Lowe whiffed on an attempted backhanded catch as he nearly collided with Ray's left fielder Randy Arozarena. And then Arias on Sunday afternoon as the Orioles' starting third baseman and number seven batter, one for four with an RBI single. Uh, I don't know anyone who expected this. Ramon Arias being an offensive force for the O's uh, in this series. Ryan Mountcastle had a big hit 
in the series. Uh, he in the 11-inning win at the Rays on Saturday as the Orioles starting first baseman and number three batter. Went just one for five, but the one was a big hit uh, in the Orioles' two-run 11th, the two-out, two-run opposite field bloop single to right field on a 1-2 pitch for a 6-4 Orioles lead. And that Mountcastle hit salvaged atop of the 11th in which the Orioles' automatic runner, Rugnet Odor, got picked off and caught stealing third base for the first out. That was a brutal moment for the O's, but Mountcastle helped to make up for that moment with the big two-out, two-run opposite field bloop single. Uh, Trey Mancini on Friday night as the Orioles starting DH in number two batter, three for five with a solo homer and two singles. So there was a good bit to like for the O's offensively in this series. The pitching for the O's in this series uh, left a lot to be desired from a starting pitching standpoint. The relief pitching, though, was quite good. I'll get to that in a little bit here. Tyler Wells in game one was so-so. Wells in the 5-4 loss at the Rays on Friday night. Three runs in five and two-thirds innings. He gave up six hits, four doubles, and two singles. He issued two walks. He did, though, record six strikeouts, and he did throw a lot of strikes. 92 pitches, 62 strikes versus just 30 balls. Uh, Wells allowed one run through five and two-thirds innings, but he in the bottom of the six allowed back-to-back two-out doubles to tie the game at two, and then reliever CNL Perez came into the game and gave up a two-out RBI double. Uh, Tyler Wells, 18 starts in the 2022 regular season. ERA, a 338 whip of 108 as he has made this transition from reliever to starter. And for the most part, the transition is going really well. I mean, Tyler Wells, to me, has been the Orioles' best starting pitcher so far this season. Uh, Dean Kramer in game two of the series at the Rays did struggle. Uh, Now, he only struggled for a second time in seven starts, but he struggled. Uh, Kramer in the Orioles 6-4, 11-inning win at the Rays on Saturday. Three runs in four innings. He gave up eight hits, a homer, a double, and six singles. Issued no walks, but he issued a hit-by-pitch and two wild pitches, and he recorded just two strikeouts, and Kramer over his four innings through 79 pitches. And then Jordan Lyles got rocked in game three. Uh, Now, he only struggled for a second time in six starts, but he really was bad. Lyles in the 7-5 loss at the Rays on Sunday afternoon, six runs in two and two-thirds innings. He gave up six hits, two homers, three doubles, and a single. He issued two walks and a hit by pitch. Did have five strikeouts, but this was a very bad outing for Lyles. He struggled with his fastball command. He just didn't have it on Sunday afternoon. Uh, Lyles in the 2022 regular season, now 19 starts, ERA of 476. He's up and down. He has had some really bad outings this season, but he also has had some very good outings this season, and he had been on a nice run. So, you know, I'm not going to hammer Lyles too badly for what he did on Sunday afternoon. He was coming off in a 4-2 win at the Chicago Cubs this past Tuesday night, having allowed two runs in seven innings. Uh, His previous outing, a 4-1 win over the Los Angeles Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on July 7th, one run in six innings. Uh, The outing before that, 4-3 loss at the Minnesota Twins on July 2nd, one run in six into third innings, seven strikeouts, versus one walk. So lately, there has been much more good than bad from Lyles, but uh, there was quite a bit of bad uh, from Jordan Lyles on Sunday afternoon. So the Orioles' bullpen in this series at the Rays. Odd game in game one. Uh, I mentioned CNL Perez. So he in the 5-4 loss at the Rays on Friday night allowed two runs and got just one out. Entered the game in the bottom of the six with two outs, a runner on second, and the game tied at two, and he gave up a two-out RBI double by Francisco Mejia for a 4-2 raise lead, followed by a pinch two-out two-run homer by Kristen Bethencourt on a 1-2 pitch for a 5-2 raise lead. Bad outing for CNL Perez, clearly. I highlight this because he had been so good so far this season. That outing raised the ERA 
for CNL Perez in the 2022 regular season from 0.90 to 1.48. I just was not used to seeing this. CNL Perez uh, prove himself to be mortal by what happened with him on Friday night. But the Orioles' bullpen the rest of the series was really good. The 6-4-11 inning win at the Rays on Saturday. Six Orioles relievers combined to allow one run unearned in seven innings. Uh, Austin Voth, the former National, another good outing in this game. Two and a third scoreless innings, lowering his ERA with the O's to 342 over 23 and two-thirds innings. Keegan Aiken on Saturday faced three batters, got three outs, lowering his ERA for the 2022 regular season to 226. Now, Aiken in the 7-5 loss at the Rays on Sunday afternoon did have some issues. Uh, Aiken in that game allowed one run in one and two-thirds innings, but also from the Orioles' bullpen on Sunday afternoon was a sensational outing from Brian Baker as part of an overall very good outing for the Orioles' bullpen. Four Orioles relievers on Sunday afternoon combined to allow one run in five and a third innings with nine strikeouts, and Brian Baker on Sunday afternoon, one and two-thirds perfect innings with five strikeouts. Yes, Brian Baker on Sunday afternoon faced five batters and recorded five strikeouts. I mean, that's one of the best relief outings that you'll ever see from any relief pitcher. He faces five guys. He generates five strikeouts. Brian Baker was tremendous uh, in that Orioles loss on Sunday afternoon. So it continues to be the case that the Orioles bullpen has been a major bright spot so far this season and is one of the biggest reasons, if not the biggest reason, for the O's being 46 and 46 at the All-Star break. I mean, the O's are legitimately one of the bigger surprises in the majors. This team, 92 games into its 2022 regular season, being 46 and 46 in the bullpen, uh, certainly has been a big part of that. And not so coincidentally, we have as the lone Orioles player on the 2022 American League All-Star team as a reliever in Jorge Lopez. But what really, truly provides excitement, if you're an Orioles fan right now, is the inventory of promising young players, including in the minors. And one of those players continued to shine on Sunday afternoon. D.L. Hall, he is ranked by MLB Pipeline as the number 66 prospect in baseball. And he is on some run right now. D.L. Hall on Sunday afternoon in a 1-0 home win for the Triple A Norfolk Tides over the Worcester Red Sox. Five scoreless innings with 10 strikeouts versus just one walk and two hits. Yeah, 10 strikeouts in five innings, which were five scoreless innings. Take a listen to this now. D.L. Hall, over his last four starts in just 20 and two-thirds innings, has 40 strikeouts. That is remarkable. 20 and two-thirds innings, 40 strikeouts for D.L. Hall over his last four starts. If he's not major league ready, he's certainly getting awfully close. Uh, D.L. Hall now in the 2022 season for Norfolk, 14 starts, ERA of 351, a walks per nine innings of five. Walks have been an issue for him, although on Sunday afternoon, uh, he only issued one walk over his five scoreless innings. But how about D.L. Hall's strikeout rate for the 2022 season for Norfolk? His strikeouts per nine innings for Norfolk this season now, 14.99. 15 strikeouts per nine innings for D.L. Hall for Norfolk 
in the 2022 season. He has been outstanding lately. Uh, the O's took hold with the number 21 pick in the 2017 MLB draft out of a high school in Georgia. He last season dealt with a stress reaction in his left elbow, so you weren't quite sure what to expect from him coming into this season, but he lately has been just on fire. Again, 40 strikeouts in just 20 and two-thirds innings over his last four starts, and D.L. Hall, one of many reasons right now, if you're an O's fan, to be excited about what's coming. So the O's now uh, in the midst of their all-star break, and they will resume their 2022 regular season with a seven-game homestand against the New York Yankees and Tampa Bay Rays. So the O's will face the Major League-leading Yankees for a three-game series at Oriole Park at Camden Yards July 22nd through July 24th. And then the O's will welcome the Rays for a four-game series at Oriole Park at Camden Yards July 25th through July 28th. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So unless something monumental happens in Washington, D.C. sports, no show for Tuesday, no show for Wednesday. This is a vacation week, kind of, sort of. I'll be back with you with shows for Thursday and Friday. So three shows this week, Monday, Thursday, and Friday. We'll have a lot to discuss. I'm hoping to have on some special guests as we get closer to the start of Commander's Training Camp on July 27th. Uh, I've had some great guests on the podcast recently. So Tuesday and Wednesday would be good days to catch up on anything that you may have missed. Uh, episode 354, I spoke with Eric from Commander's Realm on the state of his fandom of the Commanders. Commander's quarterback Carson Wentz, the popularity of receiver Terry McLaurin among Commander's fans, uh, Commander's head coach Ron Rivera, the rebrand and more. Episode 355, I chatted with Cam Meller. He is the senior director of college football in the NFL Draft for Pro Football Network. And Cam had some great insight on the commanders and college football, including just how loaded at quarterback the 2023 NFL Draft is set to be and why Sam Howell could be a franchise quarterback for the commanders. And episode 357, uh, one of my most favorite interviews that I've ever done. Warren Sharp of sharpfootballanalysis.com and sharpfootballstats.com, an NFL analytics pioneer with a deep dive on the commanders, including their approach at quarterback, what they have in quarterback Carson Wentz, uh, the truth about their offensive line, whether Scott Turner is a good offensive coordinator, where we are with rushing offense in the NFL in 2022, where we are with defense in the NFL in 2022 and more. Have a great next few days, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. Well, you, you talked recently about wanting to be here, um, not necessarily wanting to be traded. Um, have those feelings changed though, or would you like to be in Washington if things worked out? I mean, for me, uh, uh, this is the team I've been since, what, 2015. Uh, I've been with this team, and I feel good with it. And when I get to know the city more, it feels great. Why should I need to change?